Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We reflect on the amazing life of Hazel McCallion. The winter sitting of the House of Commons begins. Would a nationalized health care plan work here in Canada? Postal workers may soon add something new to their to-do list. Happy 150th to Burlington, and the Super Bowl matchup is now set. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. She was amazing, and I went to so many events with Hazel, and make no mistake about it, she was the star of the show, uh, no matter who she was with. Over the past couple of decades, I had many opportunities to speak with her, to learn from her, to get advice from her. Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the passing of Hurricane Hazel McCallion. She died over the weekend at the age of 101, leaving behind a tremendous and long-lasting legacy. Colin DeMello is Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Your thoughts on Hazel McCallion and the legacy that she has left? Well, I mean, listen, Hazel McCallion has always been kind of a legend when it comes to uh, Ontario politics, and she's always had a larger-than-life kind of presence in Ontario politics. Uh, this is a person who was, you know, single-handedly able to move votes just by uh, giving someone an endorsement. Uh, the federal Liberals, as an example, in 2015, really credited Hazel McCallion with helping them win uh, parts of Mississauga, right? I mean, in order to win a majority government, a lot of... Uh, parties need that 905 key set of votes and Mississauga is crucial to that and you know her endorsement meant a great deal because people would trust her to the degree that they would vote the way she said she endorsed Kathleen Wynne for premier she endorsed uh, Doug Ford as the premier and, and I mean you know even into I think what struck a lot of us anytime we interacted with her was here was a person you know into her 100s and and still had a sharp mind. She had sharp wit and she had, you know, th this kind of political expertise enough so to be able to give advice into her, you know, well into her 100s to give advice to the Premier of Ontario. I don't think many of us can picture ourselves living <laughs> to 100, <laughs> let alone being able to, you know, have that frame of mind to be able to give political advice to uh, the Premier of the day. But that's, that's just the kind of person she was um, and somebody who really today across Mississauga and across Ontario is, is being remembered as being a true trailblazer and a person, you know, who, who's like. Oh, we may have lost Colin DeMello. Uh, we'll resume with him, so to speak. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, joining us to reflect on the uh, the life and the legacy and the tremendous one of longtime Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion. Uh, just listening to Paul and Schoen in the news this morning talking about her longevity, 12 terms as mayor of Mississauga. That is, I mean, where's that mind-blowing emoji? That's what I would use to describe Hazel McCallion as mayor of Mississauga. And Colin is right, still at the age of 100, 101, offering her opinion, offering her views on how Mississauga, how the, the province, how the country should move forward. We're back with uh, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Um, Colin, uh, Mayor McCallion earned the nickname Hurricane because she was outspoken, but it, it wasn't just a bunch of hot air. It was well thought out, uh, really strong opinions that she gave about how cities, how provinces, how the country should be run. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you take a look at Mississauga, for anyone who's kind of, uh, you know, been to Mississauga and kind of seen 
uh, what that city is like. Almost every square inch of Mississauga has Hazel McCallion's imprint on it. Right. I mean, when she took over as, as the mayor, uh, it, it really was a bedroom community, a number of smaller towns and cities that, you know, were stitched together. And, and she was the one who identified that she wanted to kind of start building out the city. And uh, there were neighborhoods built in on, on empty uh, lots of land in Mississauga. And when all of that land was finally used up, she you know turned her focus to intensification and creating a downtown core in Mississauga. Uh, and, you know, Premier Doug Ford always kind of talked about her ability to convince people to do exactly what she wanted. Right? He said she would call people, planners, developers into her office and said, OK, well, this is the way I would like these plans to go. And that's exactly how they went. I mean, she really was able to, um, you know, see a vision pushed forward. Now, there are detractors, of course, who will say that she uh, was in charge of a lot of sprawl in Mississauga. She earned the nickname the Queen of Sprawl. And she was, of course, uh, embroiled in a couple of conflict of interest investigations related to uh, development and family ties. But ultimately, if you were to talk to the average resident in, in Mississauga, you know, there is no scandal associated with Hazel McCallion. There's only um, you know, a lot of really warm feelings and, and, and a sense that she was a true leader who always put Mississauga first, no matter if she was talking to the premier or the prime minister, it was always about what was best for Mississauga. Um, and, and that's why Mississauga is really the way it is today, which is, you know, uh, the second largest city um, in, in Ontario. Absolutely. Well said. Colin, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That is Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. I'd forgot that Hazel McCallion was a pro hockey player in her younger days. I mean, she did it all. She she played hockey. She was an effective hockey player as well, earned some money, and was instrumental in professional women's hockey in this country getting a team in the GTA and a big supporter of minor and junior hockey in this country. Uh, Hazel McCallion, she will be missed. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. People are losing loved ones at record rates to violent crime and drug overdoses. And families who've been locked down for two years because of COVID are now locked down at airports when they try to get away for a small vacation. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev unleashing his thoughts as the winter sitting of the House of Commons begins today. MPs back in the House for the first time since December. And this is really shaping up to be a significant sitting. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken joins us to tee up what's going on in Parliament. Good morning, David. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, no problem. How's it going? Uh, good. Uh, let's start with the Trudeau government. What are the top priorities for the governing liberals? Well, the, the first one coming right uh, hard up uh, next week is a big health care summit with the premiers. I mean, you probably know that all the premiers, including Ontario's Doug Ford, have been complaining for, what, two years now that the federal government is not paying enough for health care. And we've, you know, we've done all sorts of stories, of course, about the health care crisis in emergency rooms. Um, you know, parents went through that situation where they couldn't get, you know, fever reducer for the kids. And then the fever reducer ran out for adults. And the, a lot of the provinces blame the, the federal government partly for the problem. So Trudeau has finally said, OK, let's get the premiers here in Ottawa for a big summit next week. And that's where, you know, the, the thinking is they'll start to hammer out some sort of deal to put more cash towards the provinces on health care. So that's the first thing coming up. 
But for most Canadian households, if you look at any poll in the last six months, what's the number one issue? Cost of living, inflation. And the problem for any incumbent government, provincial or federal, is that normally when you have a problem, governments throw money at the problem. There's a spending program that will help you out, except inflation is not that kind of problem. If the federal government started sending out checks to help people with the rising cost of groceries or rent or whatever, that would in fact be inflationary itself and would add to the problem. So the government um, has a very tricky a tricky situation on its hands, knowing that Canadians are struggling with the cost of living. What can it do? The Prime Minister, during uh, uh, last week, he was in Ottawa meeting with his caucus. He recognized that that is the problem, vowed to pay attention to it. But uh, when question period gets underway today at 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, I guarantee you that's going to be some of the, the first things that the opposition leaders are going to ask him about. What are you doing? about uh, the cost of living. It's uh, it's top of the charts. That has been the top of the chart for Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev. He's been hammering away on the theme that uh, the Trudeau government has broken everything under the sun. Is right. that a winning theme for the PCs? Well, I think so far so good. I mean, if, again, take a look at any number of polls, different polling firms over the last uh, few months, and the Conservatives are ahead. Now, it might only be by a, a couple of points, two, three, four percentage points. And don't forget, in the last uh, two federal elections, the Conservatives won the popular vote. More people voted Conservative, but because of the way our system works, the Liberals won more seats. Their vote was more efficient. So I think if there's, uh, I think I think you could say that uh, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have made the case that, quote, everything is broken. That is what Polyev says uh, all the time. And that's just not inflation. That goes to wait times in hospitals or passport processing, uh, you name it. Um, I think that the I think a lot of swing voters would not be saying, "Okay, you've made the case that things are not working in Ottawa. Now, what are you going to do to fix it? What are your solutions? How, for example, does Pierre Polyev feel about Doug Ford's plan to allow more private sector delivery of health care? Again, with the single payer system, albeit. But think of the NDP. They don't like that plan one bit. And we haven't really heard where Pierre Polyev stands on that. How would Pierre Polyev, for example, help eliminate wait times? Um, what would he do uh, about inflation? I mean, at one point during his leadership campaign, he talked about firing the Bank of Canada governor. Does he still believe in that? So I think it's, uh, again, I think swing voters will be, be looking at the conservative leaders saying, okay, you've got our attention. You're making a good point about everything being broken, but how are you going to fix things? We have 90 more seconds with David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That brings us to the $60,000 question. Might even be more than that, to be, to be honest. Could we have an election this year? What are your thoughts? You know, I get asked this by friends and family all the time. And the thing <laughs> I say to them is, is it's a minority parliament. So, like, anything could happen. We're going to have a confidence vote early this spring on the budget. And governments can fall or rise on confidence votes. But for me, what I'm doing, I'm going to watch that Jugmeet Singh-Justin Trudeau relationship. Remember, the NDP and the Liberals have a deal in which the NDP will support the Liberals at least until next year, so long as the NDP sees progress on its priorities, which include universal pharmacare, universal dental care, and housing. And just recently, and you're going to see this today, Jugmeet Singh, again, remember I said he doesn't like Doug Ford's plan on private sector delivery of health care, and he wants Justin Trudeau to do something about that. So watch that relationship closely, the Trudeau-Singh relationship. If it starts to sour, then yes, all bets may be off, and we may be into an election this year. 
personally, I think they will work to keep that relationship uh, productive, and we probably won't see an election until next year. But again, it's, it's a minority parliament, and that's why we've got to keep paying attention to things. Great analysis, as always, from David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. David, thanks for the time. Enjoy the winter sitting. Thanks very much. Cheers. Uh, and to Jagmeet Singh, he's apparently going to call for an emergency debate on the privatization of health care in the House of Commons today. And whether that materializes or not uh, remains to be seen. But keep it right here on 900 CHMLs. We'll bring you that news when it arrives. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last week, as we all know, we found out during the federal liberal cabinet retreat in Hamilton that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to meet with the country's premiers and territorial leaders on February 7th to talk about Healthcare funding, healthcare delivery in this country. What if any new plan emerges from this meeting remains to be seen. But we know one thing, something's got to be done to fix Canada's much maligned healthcare model. Our next guest has an interesting concept. Taylor Noakes is a public historian, independent journalist, and has a great piece online at tvo.org and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Taylor, good morning. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. As I said, you know, the current system is not working. Um, you know, newsflash. Uh, where did it all go wrong? That's a great question. I mean, I think we're talking about something that's been happening over the course of multiple uh, multiple decades. This is a problem that goes back many, many years. Um, I like to chart it from about the last 40 years. About 40 years ago, Canada had uh, roughly seven uh, health care beds, uh, hospital beds rather, uh, per 1,000 uh, Canadians. That number's now gone down to about two and a half. Uh, it's a considerable reduction. And one of the big problems that there's been cuts uh, pretty much across the board uh, in all provinces. Um, there's been, the federal government has topped that off with, with transfer payments, but when we're in a sticky situation where you know, provinces keep cutting, the federal government you know, shores up that money, uh, but ultimately investments aren't being made and it's resulting in a, in a across the board and in, in poor services available to Canadian citizens. You wrote uh, in your opinion piece uh, online at tvo.org, the title is The Provinces Have Failed, Canada Needs Nationalized Healthcare. What would a national healthcare system look like in your mind? Well, yeah, that's that's a great question. The, the weird thing is that most Canadians actually already think we already have uh, a nationalized healthcare system, right? The average Canadian thinks that our system is a lot more uh, comparable to, let's say, European systems like the British NHS than the system we actually have, which is like 10 or if you want to include the federal government's involvement, 11 different systems that are all kind of working, but not quite working together. Um I think that's, you know, Canadians talk about our universal healthcare system as though it was one. So what I'm saying is let's cut out the middleman entirely, get rid of provincial involvement altogether and run it as one unified national system directed by the federal government or a federal government agency. Um, and I think that would actually appeal a lot to provincial governments and, 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 and premiers who a lot of them get elected on platforms of eliminating uh, government waste, of reducing the size of government, of lowering taxes, of you know lowering the bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. So I see that as a bit of a win-win, right? The governments of Ontario or Quebec or whomever else can reduce the size of their government, lower provincial taxes, and shift the responsibility onto the federal government. I see that as a huge win, uh, particularly for a premier like Ford or a premier, uh, um, you know, the premiers of Quebec or uh, Alberta. Um, 
And instead of running you know, all these individual separate systems, uh, we would just run one nationalized system. That would be a lot more like a universal healthcare system. So right now we have a system where we pay out through insurance, um, or rather where provincial governments pay uh, to the providers. You eliminate all of that ex- excess bureaucracy too. Just run it directly. A single payer, unified national system. Taylor Noakes is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He's a public historian, independent journalist, has a great article online at tvo.org entitled The Provinces Have Failed, Canada Needs Nationalized Healthcare. I wanted to ask you this because we're seeing an expansion of privatized care in Ontario. Would private health have a place in your nationalized healthcare program? No, we need to resist that at every possible turn. You know, Canada is probably the only country in the entire world sitting right next to the United States, as close as we are, seeing how deficient their system is, how many millions, if not tens of millions of Americans have no health care whatsoever. Um, we're the only country in the world that sees their system and is apparently saying, yeah, sure, let's do what they're doing. It's not going to work. Um, I have the benefit. My wife has worked in both the American and Canadian healthcare system. She has seen how they work. She knows all the deficiencies of the, of the American system. This is not a system that we want to replicate. The solution is not to privatize. That's only going to make, uh, it, it's only going to reduce the access for to more Canadians. They have, solution is to go in the opposite direction. We need to just pump more money into this system and find efficiencies by looking at it from a national as opposed to an individual provincial perspective. Well, we'll see what the Prime Minister and Premiers come up with following their meeting on February 7th. Until then, Taylor, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Taylor Noakes, public historian, independent journalist. You can find his article online at tvo.org. It is an interesting thought. You know, let's cut out the middleman. Forget about having the provinces and territories set a health care budget. Let's just have the federal government say, hey, this is what we're spending on health care. And, and there you go. Deliver it as is. The, the province becomes the deliverer of health care as opposed to the one that is, you know, basically determining how much money is going to be spent on what kind of health care delivery process uh, unfolds. Uh, interesting suggestion. Again, you can check it out online at tvo.org. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We remember the dark days of the early going of the COVID-19 pandemic. That social isolation was real, especially for seniors, whether they were in a senior's home a long-term care facility, or perhaps they were living at home and maybe even alone. And it was really depressing to think about and to talk about and to know that these seniors were out there and there's not a lot of connection. Now, maybe a phone call, maybe if they were technically savvy, a FaceTime, that would certainly help. But more often than not, these seniors were left at home and going about their day. There's a new idea out here in Canada, and it has been replicated in other countries, about having postal workers do check-ins on older Canadian citizens while they're out and about on their delivery route. It's kind of a neat idea. Dr. Samir Sinha is the Director of Health Policy Research and Co-Chair of the National Institute on Aging, which has come out with this idea. Dr. Sinha, thanks for the time this morning, and thank you for joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So this is being done, just doing a little bit of research on this in places like Japan and in many uh, cities in Europe. How is it working and how can we adopt that here in Canada? 
Yeah, well, as you said, for over a decade now, Japan Post and actually the Postal Service of France, for example, and the island of Jersey have been running a, a service like this. And part of the reason they're doing it is because we know that we're not sending as many letters, so many of these postal services that we need are not as financially viable. That's the same thing for Canada Post. So they came up with ideas and said, wait a minute, we have the largest fleet of vehicles. We have a workforce that visits literally every single address of anybody who needs it. And uh, and why don't we provide an additional service that we can charge for um, and generate revenue, but also provides a, a real important public service. So it really just works um, as simple as that, where people who are interested in the service uh, can actually sign up, or you can sign up on behalf of your parents, for example. The French program is actually called Watch Over My Parents. Uh, and then a postal worker uh, will come by um, once or more times a week, if you wish. Just knock on the door, check in, see how you're doing, uh, and uh, and just relay on any important information that might be helpful to help you stay healthy and independent. Would there be a cost to this? Yeah. So, for example, in the Isle of uh, Jersey, for example, what they do is the government actually thought this was such a great idea to actually help prevent people from ending up in hospital or 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 having um, worse outcomes happen that they even actually stepped in and said they're giving the Postal Service money to allow qualified individuals to get two weeks, uh, two visits a week. And then on top of that, if the individual wants more, uh, then they can pay for that out of pocket, about 10 bucks a visit, if you will. Uh, and in France and Japan, um, they're, they're completely designed as, uh, as subscriber services. And we had a recent survey done in Canada showing that over 80% of older people thought this is a really neat idea. And over 40% actually said, yeah, I might even consider subscribing it to myself just to save off some loneliness and isolation, but also to know that someone is there looking out for me um, just while I'm trying to stay independent uh, and at home. Postal workers are obviously a natural choice. They're going door to door in in many neighborhoods still. I know we have those community mailboxes, but in many neighborhoods, they're still going door to door. They're on their route. uh, And why not knock on the door and have a little chat with a senior to make sure that everything is okay? But there's another particular angle to this and why postal workers would be ideal is because there's a high trust factor that people have for postal employees. You're absolutely right, Rick. So 87% of Canadians actually say they really trust their postal workers. So again, this is not just a random person. This is someone you trust to bring your mail. And the other cool thing is while we have community mailboxes in many communities and people say, well, what happens in those circumstances? Um, Canada Post actually will deliver anybody's mail to their door um, if they if they need that service. So if, if they are an older person who's frail and can't get out to the mailbox, for example, they might be a great candidate for the service. But they can also ask Canada Post to, at least on a weekly basis, come to their door, deliver their mail. And you could think that for some of these individuals, they might particularly benefit from also having that friendly knock on the door to say, how are you doing? Got another minute with Dr. Samir Sinha, the Director of Health Policy Research and Co-Chair of the National Institute on Aging, which is suggesting that uh, Canada Post should get involved in these check-ins of older Canadian citizens while on their delivery route. Has, been, has, has there been any response from Canada Post? 
So Canada Post hasn't been very talkative, but actually the Canadian Postal Workers actually has really been a quite, quite a big fan of this. They've actually been pushing this as an idea that they're quite interested in. And we got inspired because there was actually a federal review trying to say, how can we keep financial uh, uh, Canada Post financially viable a number of years ago? And this was actually one of the ideas that they said, hey, other countries are doing this. Maybe we should look at this. And certainly we know that... Uh, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers feel this is something that their workers could do, obviously with some training and support, but something that also they see could be a way to keep the postal service more viable and give their postal workers more things to do with their time. Sounds like a very worthwhile program, Dr. Sinha. Good luck with it. Hopefully uh, we get it instituted sometime soon. Thanks a lot, Rick. That's Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Health Policy Research and Co-Chair of the National Institute on Aging. It is... It is a, a great idea. It's being done in other countries for a, a nominal fee. You can have your postal worker check in on um, a, a, an aging parent or an older grandparent, whatever the case is. Make sure they're doing okay. Figure out if they need anything. Uh, give them some tips and advice if something is, I don't know, bro- a broken dishwasher, whatever the case is. Maybe they need a part for their car. I don't know. Sounds like a pretty good idea. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is a year of celebration in Burlington in 2023. Back in 1873, the villages of Wellington Square and Port Nelson merged to become the Village of Burlington. And by 1914, that village became a town, the town of Burlington. And ultimately, the city of Burlington was born in 1974. So, happy birthday, Burlington, as it celebrates its 150th anniversary this year. And here to mark the occasion, Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of the city of Burlington, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Marianne Mead Ward, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing great. Feeling great for 150. Yeah, <laughs> looking pretty good for 150. What's uh, what's planned this year? Well, we're going to be marking the event uh, with uh, with celebrations throughout the year, uh, and and enhancing some of our existing celebrations. So Canada Day, for example, will have a 150 theme, and there is a, um, a a logo, for lack of a better word, that has been created, which is really cool. Um, it has a 150 plus, and the plus symbol is in recognition of our Indigenous history. Of course, we're on the treaty lands and territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. And uh, we recognize that our Indigenous history goes beyond 150 years. Uh, but the colors, uh, so the orange is in there uh, to mark uh, truth and reconciliation. Uh, blue is in there, light blue, to symbolize freedom as we continue to live in peace and harmony. Yellow symbolizes unity and our multicultural community, which is growing every year. And green represents nature and the land. So it's um, it's something that, that really does tell the story in a couple of colors and symbols of, of 150 years. Uh, in keeping with that, many opportunities, many challenges lay ahead. And you kind of outlined them in your latest State of the City address uh, earlier this month. What was your message to people that uh, you were speaking to? We are building our city for the next 150 years, and this really does 
uh, rely on Indigenous teachings that you don't plan for a term of council. Uh, you plan for seven generations. And when we think about the legacy that people who were here 150 years ago or 50 years ago or several generations ago left for us, the parks, the community centers, you know, the incredible uh, city that we now have, it is our task to plan those uh, amenities for our community for the next 150 years and the next seven generations. And we know we have a lot of catching up to do. We we haven't kept up in terms of community centers and community fit facilities and parks. They are uh, under high demand and and we need to do more for our growing community. So that is the task ahead of us. It's a huge challenge, but it's also an incredible opportunity to lay the foundation for the next generation and build something for people who will never know our names uh, and we we know, won't know who they are, but they will benefit from the decisions we make uh, in the next few years on our watch. Part of that process is certainly the annual budget deliberations, and, and you're in the midst of doing that right now. Um, in in very uh, you know uncertain financial times, how are budget talks going in Burlington? They well, it's a difficult budget year, and <clears throat> you know that is in part because of this you know, trifecta of a perfect storm of continuing to feel the impacts of COVID, uh, reduced revenue and increased costs, of course, inflation, and then uh, growth, which has surpassed all of our targets. And and we simply haven't kept up in providing enough community facilities for residents. So we're, we are correcting, trying to correct all of that and put ourselves on stable footing for the next uh, for the next few years, and so it's it's a tough budget year, but it is uh, really the same experience when I talk to mayors across Ontario. The budget uh, is in line with what they're facing. The same pressures, uh, looking at five to seven percent increase in tax across the board in Ontario. So we're all trying to do the right thing for our communities to make sure that we address those challenges. Here in Hamilton, that tax kind of target, tax hike target, I should say, is about two percent. What are people People in Burlington uh, likely looking at? They're looking right now at 7.09% overall. The city portion of that is about uh, 5.9%. And then there's a regional portion of just a little over 1%. And of course, school board taxes haven't increased in a number of years. So that sits at zero in terms of the increase. So uh, so that's what we're looking at. We're heading into budget deliberations next week, and uh, we'll make the final decision on Valentine's Day, February 14th. So residents can continue to reach out to us and give us their feedback in writing, or they can come to one of our budget meetings in person uh, or virtually and provide their feedback. We have another 90 seconds with Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the passing of Hurricane Hazel McCallion. Mm-hmm. Well, she was an incredible inspiration to women in politics and men. Um, but, you know, one of the highest compliments that could ever be paid to you as a female leader, but as especially as a mayor, is to be uh, compared favorably to Hazel. Her passion, her uh, her drive, the fighting spirit that she had to go after the things that she believed in. She was a trailblazer and an incredible person and will be sorely missed. Absolutely. Uh, mayor Mead Ward, thank you for your time today and uh, good luck with the budget talks. 
Thanks a lot, Rick. That's Marianne Mead Ward, mayor of the city of Burlington, celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. Should be some uh, cool events on tap throughout the year. Keep tabs on what is planned in Burlington online at burlington.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Second and goal. And it off. Sanders walks in. Touchdown, Eagles. Kevin Burkhart, the call on Fox and CTV. The Eagles fly, Eagles fly, taking on Chiefs Kingdom in Super Bowl 57. Philadelphia beating San Francisco 31-7 in the NFC title game yesterday. And it was the Chiefs taking out the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20 on what were both really dramatic games in the National Football League. Cindy Boren is a sports reporter with the Washington Post and joins us once again on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Cindy, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, a little bit uh, sleep-deprived, but um, <laughs> I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I hear you. Hey, let's start with the uh, Eagles 49ers. It was the first game of the day on Championship Sunday in the National Football League. It's incredible to think that Philadelphia last year won just four games, this season 14-3, and three, and now the early favorites in Super Bowl 57 on February the 12th. What do you make of these Eagles? Um, I think they're formidable, and I think the Chiefs are going to have their hands full. I think the, the defense is terrific. I, that's obvious, I think, to everyone. And it was, what, the number two defense in the league? Jalen Hurts' shoulder may be bothering him, but they have other weapons. I just, it, it, it's a little bit frightening. On the other hand, the Chiefs do have Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> yes, they do. Jalen Hurts 16-1 and as a starter this year. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But before we get to Mahomes, mm-hmm. there was a Cinderella story that struck midnight, and that was the story of Brock yeah. Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, the last draft pick in the NFL uh, last spring, leads the team to multiple victories in a row, gets to the championship game, but was injured early on, and that was pretty much it for the Niners. Yeah, he was 7-1 and one as a starter. I think he was the, the feel-good story that everyone was kind of focusing on. And it, it's sad to see it go that way for him. Um, it's also sad because he's probably not going to be the starting quarterback for the 49ers next year. And, you know, it, it's just, it, it, it isn't the way anyone really wanted it to end. Um, you know, certainly he's going to have a future in the NFL. People are going to, going to keep him around. He's shown that he can win. He's shown that he can adapt. Um, but it, it, was just really sad for him um, that, that he couldn't. That. And the other thing that, that kind of blew my mind, you kind of forget that the NFL doesn't have a uh, rule in place, doesn't allow a team to have an emergency starter at quarterback, you mm-hmm. know, in the wings, you know, a third quarterback. And I think they really need to tweak that rule because there was just no one to play quarterback. Yeah, Josh Johnson, their fourth stringer, had to come in. Then he suffered a concussion, or at least went into concussion protocol. Purdy had to come back in. And, you know, throughout the game, he went four for four. And obviously the the offense just couldn't get going because he could not throw the ball downfield. A, a tremendous season no. for the 49ers really coming down uh, in a ball of flames. Let's go to the AFC Championship game. Wow, Chiefs, Bengals, they put on a show at Arrowhead Stadium last night. And ultimately, Kansas City is advancing to the third Super Bowl in four years. Chiefs, Bengals might be the new, I don't know, Patriots, Colts of, ba- of back in the day? Yeah, it's the new Mahomes Borough uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, can they play every week? You know, I, I guess that's not a good idea because somebody wouldn't, you know, they'd, they'd have no one left after about three weeks, I think. 
but um, it it was it, it was sad that it came down to the play, you know, to the the penalty. Uh, but it was a call that had to be made. They, the officials would have made that call if it had been Burrow who had gotten pushed out the way he was, and it gave the Chiefs 15 yards that they needed. And now Patrick Mahomes has two weeks to kind of heal his ankle. Mahomes was 29 of 43, threw for 326 mm-hmm. yards, couple of TDs. He did have a costly fumble that went back for a Cincinnati touchdown. But listen to these stats. And here's him on with a high ankle sprain. Six for six on passes outside the pocket. <laughs> six for six passing while on the run. And six for six on extended dropbacks, which means he's kind of looking for a receiver, you know, kind of uh, moving in the pocket. Here's right. a guy who just gets the job done. He does. Uh, there was an interesting story in The Ringer, I think it was, last week, um, that, that he's much more effective and he's much better when he is under pressure, uh, which probably is something that we've all noticed. But it, that would seem to factor in, I think, in two weeks to me, uh, given the, the Eagles and the pressure that they're going to put on him. The only bad thing with the National Football League playoffs is now we got to wait two weeks for the Super Bowl. But in, yeah. in two weeks' time, how do you see this championship game going down? Well, Mahomes will be healthier. Um, uh, the high ankle sprain was certainly, I think, aggravated last night. It certainly didn't get better last night, that's for sure. Uh, he'll get treatment for two weeks. Um, he's 27 years old, and 27-year-olds bounce back ridiculously quickly. Um, I hate them. And, um, <laughs> <for> that, <laughs> you and me both. Um, but... You know, he wasn't coming out of that game. I mean, there were times when I think Andy Reid might have considered pulling him, and he's like, no, I'm not coming out. I'm, You know, I'm just not. And he'll be healthy. I, I, I really do give the Eagles the edge, though, just defensively. Um, the Chiefs' defense is somewhat suspect. On the other hand, Mahomes makes magic. You know, the, the guy just does it. Um, I mean, he's 27 years old, and he's going to play in his third Super Bowl. He's been in five championship games, right? Or, yep. You know, with Andy Reid, has been in five championship games in Kansas City, and he's been in, what, four of them, I think, um, right? Because they lost to the Patriots one year. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to double-check that. But, you know, he's he's going to be out there, and, and I just, I hate to I hate to underestimate the Chiefs. Um, Chris Jones is, is just a monster um, on defense. But I just think that the Eagles are going to be better, a little bit better. I'm leaning that way as well. We, we'll have about a minute to discuss the Niners quarterback quandary because, as you mentioned, Brock Purdy's probably not going to be the starter. Oh, but could mm-hmm. Tom Brady be the starter in San Francisco? <laughs> um, I started thinking about that maybe about midway through the second quarter. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. It You know, it's pretty apparent because there had been the, the report, I think, out of ESPN earlier yesterday that the Dolphins were, were in on Tua. They're out of the Brady mix. Um, and so, okay, cross that one off your list. But, I, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. It, it would seem to me to be kind of a Peyton Manning, Denver Broncos situation for Brady in San Francisco. Good defense, decent offensive people around him, you know. Manning didn't really have to do anything offensively when the Broncos won that Super Bowl. He just had to not hurt them, you know, with a, with a turnover or, you know, a, a poor game. And, you know, Brady can do that. And Brady, Brady can still pass. Mm-hmm. 
it would be a go a going home party for him. That is for sure, being from the Bay Area, and that would be a lot of fun. That no doubt about it. Cindy, thank you for your time, and uh, enjoy the big game in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you. Great to be with you. Cindy Boren is a sports reporter with the Washington Post. Chiefs Eagles meeting in Super Bowl Fifty Seven. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.